Galatians chapter 1. Years ago, maybe, I think it may have been as much as 20 years ago, we went through the whole book of Galatians in, I think, about 15 sermons or so. And so, 15 sermons, that sounds paltry next to what John MacArthur does, doesn't it? That was really just a survey of the whole book, and I didn't really stop to deal in depth with very many verses. There were four or five places where I stopped and we looked at one verse, but for the most part, I covered larger sections. I think I covered chapter one in two messages, but Galatians 1 includes what is arguably the strongest negative language the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And so this morning, I want to go back and look at just two verses from this chapter with you. And it's a warning about people who corrupt the gospel. So turn with me to Galatians 1. We'll focus this morning mainly on verses 6 and 7. We'll look a little bit at the context as well. Now, you're aware, I'm sure, that this epistle was written actually to a group of churches. Galatia is not a city. It's a region that dominates the central plateau of Asia Minor, the the large Turkish peninsula. And Paul's first missionary journey had taken him through the Galatian region in Acts 13 and 14, and the places where he preached on that first missionary journey included cities like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Pisidian Antioch, all of them Galatian cities, and in fact, those were the main municipalities in that region, and Paul went back through those same cities again on his second and third missionary journey. So he was tied to this place. He had obviously a very close relationship and attachment to these churches uh, and an obvious fondness for the people who were there. These were churches that he had founded early in his ministry and they were filled with people who had heard the gospel for the first time from the Apostle Paul himself. So he's in effect their spiritual father. And so this text is understandably full of passion, but the mood here is not exactly warm and friendly. From the opening verses, Paul writes to these churches with an abrupt tone that actually sets this letter apart from all the other Pauline epistles. Uh, Here, he writes with the tone of an indignant father. He's a displeased father scolding his children because they have badly disappointed him. In fact, look at it starting in verse 6. He writes, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So he's writing to confront the threat of some false teachers These were a particular brand of false teachers who had kind of stalked him wherever he planted churches. Wherever Paul had been, these guys would come in, it seemed, because a lot of his epistles are writing to confront the same kind of errors. Now, here's the background on this. Of course, Paul is a born and bred Pharisee who, in his past life, had hated and persecuted Christians until he was suddenly and dramatically converted. And He was given a commission from Christ personally to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It's an odd assignment, I think, for someone who is a Pharisee, because Pharisees didn't want to be even close to Gentiles. Now Paul is a missionary to them, and he planted churches, 
and filled them with Gentile converts coming out of pagan cultures. And then when he would move on to start a church in the next place, these false teachers would come in after he left, and they would tell the Gentile believers that if you want to be a real Christian, you first need to become a proselyte to Judaism because Christianity is Jewish, and so you need to be Jewish too. And that was the gist of their error. They insisted that believers in Christ are obliged to follow Old Testament ceremonial law, starting with circumcision, which was the rite of initiation, of course, in Judaism. And that flatly contradicted what Paul had preached to the Galatians, because he had always stressed with them that faith, and faith alone, is the only instrument of justification. And Paul's whole theology on that is summed up in a single verse in Romans 4, Romans 4 verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So no good work, least of all circumcision, no good work is a prerequisite to justification in the gospel Paul taught, which is the only true gospel he's about to say. And he's very specific about this too. In Romans 4, verses 9 through 11, he actually goes back to the book of Genesis and traces the chronology from Genesis 15 to Genesis 17 to show that Abraham, the scripture expressly says, Abraham was declared righteous several years before he was circumcised. Romans 4, 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while he was uncircumcised. But these false teachers were saying, no, 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 Paul is only giving you part of the gospel message. Faith is important, they said, but, but works, uh, the works that are demanded by the law are necessary if you really want to be justified, or if you want to be finally justified, or you know, if you, if you really want to go all the way with Christ, you have, to be, you have to obey the ceremonial law, starting with circumcision. Now, Acts chapter 15 describes this very same doctrine, and, and there we learn that the men behind this heresy were likewise former Pharisees who had professed faith in Christ, but they were still legalists at heart. Acts 15 verse 5 refers to them as some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. So, in other words, they professed faith in Christ. They believed in Christ to the point where they, they were self-proclaimed Christians, but they held on to this legalistic view that the ceremonial law is an essential prerequisite to justification. And these guys, in, a, in essence, had dragged their pharisaical legalism into the church. Acts 15 verse 1 says, They were teaching the Gentile brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were saying flatly, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised first. Just very similar here to some of the Hebrew roots cults that you have today. They're insisting that genuine Christianity, authentic Christianity, must also be thoroughly Jewish. And so we call these cultists, they were really, Judaizers. Paul usually called them the circumcision party, and sometimes he called them worse names than that. In Philippians 3, one of Paul's later epistles, he calls them dogs and evil workers and mutilators of the flesh. 
And furthermore, Paul says, that version of the gospel that says you have to do this before you can be justified, that's no gospel at all, he said. And in fact, the Greek, the Greek text in verses 6 and 7, our two verses, actually uses two different words that both, they're two different Greek words, but they both can be translated with the English word another. And in fact, in the King James Version, they're both translated that way. So the King James Version reads like this, another gospel which is not another. And the first another in the Greek is heteros, which means another of a different kind, not the same kind, another. The second one is alos, which means it's the same word you would use if you meant uh, another one of the same kind. Like So the LSB actually gets it exactly right. I'm reading you today from the Legacy Standard Bible, which gets it right. They translate it this way a different gospel which is really not another. And so he's saying they're flirting with a whole different kind of gospel, and it's not a legitimate alternative to the true gospel. There is no other gospel. That's his whole point. And he makes that point with supreme vigor, using the most severe language he can righteously summon, and then he punctuates it with a double curse in verses 8 and 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel that we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. It's a curse, he pronounces. And then he repeats himself immediately in the next verse for emphasis. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. Anathema, that's the word. Anathema, accursed. And that double curse there is the strongest language Paul ever uses anywhere. It comes at the start of an epistle that you read all of Galatians. It is filled with strong words. In Galatians 5.12, for example, he argues that if, if circumcision can make a person righteous, if it's necessary to make you righteous, then these guys should go ahead and just cut off their manhood completely. That's harsh. But if you think about it, these two verses in chapter 1 are even harsher than that because he's saying what these guys actually deserve is eternal damnation. That's what he's saying when he says, let them be accursed. And by the way, the immediate repetition of a curse like that, just to contextualize for you in the Koine Greek, to repeat something immediately like that's the equivalent of retweeting something in all caps. So don't pass over those maledictions without considering what you and I should learn from them. There there is no legitimate way to try to soften what Paul is saying here. This is inspired scripture, and so you can't brush this aside as an accidental overstatement. Those curses are as God-breathed as any other text of scripture, and they're meant to show us what a profound evil it is to go beyond what is written and to redesign the gospel to suit our own tastes and prejudices. And if these false teachers were, as I suppose, former Pharisees, they would have been once colleagues of Paul's. Possibly these were men whom he knew personally. They had supposedly professed faith in Christ, but despite all of that, Paul does not try to make nice with them. He doesn't show them any kind of artificial academic deference. 
He doesn't feign congeniality. He doesn't invite them to an amiable dialogue. He doesn't even challenge them to a debate. He also doesn't write to them personally before he criticizes them in this way that's as public as possible. He just brushes them off as utter heretics, and he instructs the Galatians not to have anything to do with them. He's, he, he, he says, you know, we're not to accept anyone who comes along promoting a different gospel, and that applies no matter who it is, even if it's an angel or an apostle. He expressly says that. And that, by the way, of course, is hypothetical because Paul says it like that, even if we or an angel, it's an if, it's a hypothetical. He does it just to make the point as emphatic as possible. No real angel and no real apostle would ever purposely promote a different gospel. But he says, if they do, let them be damned. He's using a level of polemical vilification that today's guardians of evangelical etiquette might try to tell us, well, this is really out of place in any discussion of religious belief or Bible doctrine. You hear that kind of thing all the time. You're not supposed to say things like that. But here you see that it isn't always right to be warm and welcoming. There are times when a curse is more appropriate than a blessing. Now, of course, it's not a good thing to be so fluent in imprecatory language that damning your adversaries, you know, that's your default response to every disagreement. That's wrong. You should avoid, in fact, there are plenty of people like that, these wardens of, self-appointed wardens of righteous precision who never do anything but curse people and condemn others. It's not a badge of honor to be like that. And in fact, if you're immediately inclined to call down fire from heaven on everyone with whom you have any kind of disagreement, that is not a godly trait. Remember, Jesus rebuked James and John for that. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who disparage you. And even Paul said, when we're reviled, we, re we bless, when we are persecuted, we endure, when we're slandered, we try to plead, he says. First Peter 3, Peter says the same thing, that Christians are not to be returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but give a blessing instead. And in fact, if you really want to be contrary, that's a pretty good way to do it. That's one of the best ways to do it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse, Paul says, Romans 12, 14. But what those texts are talking about is that's what you do when you are personally the target of an adversary's attacks. Don't push back. Don't insult for insult. But that wasn't the case here. The problem here is not some personal affront to Paul's dignity or his ego. The gospel is under attack here, and that's a blatant assault on the kingdom of heaven. And when Paul says, verse 6, you are deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ, he's not talking about himself there. He's not the one who called them by the grace of Christ. God is the one who calls and draws believers through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, God saved us and called us with a holy calling. Romans 8, 30, those whom God predestined, he also called. And later in this same epistle to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. 
Him who calls you, that's God. He's the one who calls us by the grace of Christ and by flirting with this alternative gospel, the Galatians had gone to the very brink of turning away from God, deserting him for a different gospel. And so these preachers of a false gospel weren't merely annoying thorns in Paul's side. That's not why he curses them. They were turning people away from the truth of Christ, and they therefore posed a serious threat to the churches of Galatia, and that's why Paul calls them damnable heretics. It's not just because they irritated him. In other words, he's defending the message, not the messenger. He's guarding the gospel. He's not fighting for himself. Now, these false teachers were openly hostile to the gospel, but not to Christ. They professed to love Christ. They pretended to be preachers of the gospel while they were systematically undermining the principle of divine grace that is the essential nucleus of all gospel truth. The idea that salvation is the work of God, it's not by human works, and we have nothing to boast about. They were teaching that the gospel is, first of all, about what you must do for God, rather than simply declaring what Christ has done for sinners. And it would have been positively sinful to bless the purveyors of such an upside-down gospel message. That's why Paul curses them instead. This is not a personal thing. It's about defending the gospel. It would be a sin for him to ignore the danger these guys posed. In fact, that is, isn't it, what Peter tried to do in Galatians 2, and Paul says he publicly rebuked him for it. You don't, you don't just ignore this. And in Titus 1, Paul mentions these same false teachers. He calls them there those of the circumcision party, and he says they must be silenced, or in the more picturesque words of the King James Version, which I love on this, their mouths must be stopped. Not a politically correct sentiment in our culture, but it's the only righteous response to gospel-twisting heresy. The Apostle John, even, though his nickname is the Apostle of Love, he took the same approach as Paul. He says, we're not to be amicable to people who have an agenda to undermine or attack the essential teachings of Christ. In 2 John, is one of his shortest epistles, verses 9 through 11, he says this, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. He's talking about there the kind of greeting where you bestow public honor on someone. He's not He's not saying that when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, you should simply slam the door on them. But you're not required to politely listen to their heresy. In fact, my advice is don't. But both of these apostles, Paul and John, are saying that the gospel message is the most important doctrine to defend, and it is simple and specific and anyone who tries to tweak it or twist it or tamper with it is committing a damnable sin. And don't ever forget how forcefully the apostles stress that truth. There is only one actual gospel. Cultists and Roman Catholics and most of the religious quacks on the charismatic television stations 
corrupt the gospel just as badly as the heretics Paul is talking about here. We ought, to re, we ought to view them in that regard. All of them traffic in false gospels. And they promise you divine favor for an earthly prosperity in return for your money. And in effect, what they're doing is selling indulgences. Or they add sacramental requirements that they claim you have to fulfill in order to gain God's favor. There are hundreds, actually hundreds more religious hucksters and, and indulgence sellers today than there were in Johann Tetzel's time, Luther's time, and some of them even claim to be evangelical. But, you know, the word evangelical actually means gospel-centered, but what today's priests and televangelists are preaching is the very definition of a different gospel, which, as Paul says here, is not really a gospel at all. And one of the tragic things about the evangelical culture today is that most evangelical leaders, even those who truly believe the gospel, seem to think that the best response to all the false gospels that are floating around out there is simply to ignore them or tolerate them. And the evangelical movement right now is overrun with these false gospels. The problem extends actually from the pages of Christianity Today to the fancy theatrical platforms of countless megachurches. There has never been a time, I think, in church history when the church is more in need of clear and intelligent and uncompromising voices willing to speak candidly and defend the one true gospel just the way Paul does here. So, let's look at this passage in its context. Verse 6 is really the first verse of this epistle's main body. Verses 1 through 5 are Paul's greeting and a short benediction and a doxology. And that was a standard form for how Paul always opened an epistle. The first word in every one of the Pauline epistles is his name, Paul, unless you want to count Hebrews as a Pauline epistle. It's different. I'm not sure Paul wrote it, but everyone that we know Paul wrote, he starts with his name. It's the first word in the epistle, and sometimes that's followed by the names of fellow laborers who are traveling with him or working with him, but then right after that, you have the address, which names the person or group of people that he's writing to, and then he normally says something encouraging or complimentary to whatever church or person he's writing to. In fact, that, that's true even when he writes to Corinth, which is that, you know, Corinth, that totally messed up congregation with a laundry list of problems. The whole epistle, 1 Corinthians, is written to address a series of problems in that church, and then there are more problems in the second epistle. Just think about how disorganized and confused the Corinthian church was. They had divided into warring factions. The people were filing lawsuits against one another. They were neglecting proper discipline. Had a man living in sin with his father's wife. They were abusing their spiritual gifts. They were getting drunk at the Lord's table. They were seemed confused about the doctrine of resurrection. They were doctrinally confused, in fact, on several levels, struggling with basic concepts of the Christian faith. And ultimately, the Corinthians would also then be susceptible to heretics 
who tried to entice them to rebel against Paul's authority. That's what the second epistle is all about. But despite all those many problems that Paul had to deal with in Corinth, barely four verses into his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in him in all word and all knowledge, which is, I think, quite a compliment for such a troubled church. But that was Paul's normal practice. He liked to start with a word of praise or encouragement. In fact, in the very first verse of Ephesians, he commends the people for their faithfulness. And even when he needed to deliver a rebuke or a correction, he would try to start with some gracious words about the people he's writing to. Every one of his epistles follows that very same pattern except this letter to the Galatians. And notice, there's not a single word of approval or commendation from start to finish in this whole epistle to the Galatians. There's not even a hint of gratitude or joy from Paul. His greeting is followed immediately by a scolding, and instead of a blessing, he pronounces a curse. And that's what makes our text electric. Rather than all the normal, polite formalities, he jumps straight to the point, and it's a passionate rebuke. I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. He accuses them of basically abandoning God. And the rest of this epistle is just that candid. It's an urgent and very strongly worded reprimand. In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls the Galatians foolish. And he suggests that maybe an evil agent put them under a spell, like they've been bewitched. Chapter 4, verse 11, he says, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you for nothing. And then nine verses later, he says, I'm perplexed about you. And throughout this epistle, he says things like that. He's never merely insulting, but he maintains this, this disturbed tone. It's the tone of voice that all fathers use when they are displeased. He never says anything that would soften the force of what he has to say. He is deeply and seriously troubled by their flirtation with a different gospel. And from start to finish, you can hear that passion in his words. Here is their spiritual father saying to them the spiritual equ equivalent of what I used to say to my kids when I was displeased with them. What are you, brain dead? <laughs> now, one other notable characteristic of Paul's epistle epistles is that usually his opening words contain a statement of some core gospel truth, or even more, a summary of the gospel itself. And of course, he does that here because it's desperately needed. Verse 4 is a simple, concise statement of what the true gospel is about. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God and of our God and Father. Now, anyone familiar with Paul's teaching can immediately see how pregnant with meaning those, just those few words are. This comprises the principle of substitutionary atonement. Christ gave himself for our sins. 
He's saying Christ is the atonement for our sins. Now, I trust you understand this. The the central point of Jesus' death is not to provide us with some kind of earthly and material prosperity, like they say on TV. It's not that. It's not merely to break down the walls of national boundaries and ethnic prejudices, like they say in the social justice movement. It's not to redeem earthly art and culture, and not to send us a message about social justice, not to point us on a journey towards spiritual self-realization, and certainly not to give us a pattern of self-sacrifice so that we can atone for our own sins. That's not the point. He gave himself to make a full and final atonement so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul says it like this, We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Which is to say, the gospel is not a message about you and me and what we should do. But by making the message about circumcision, these false teachers were actually preaching themselves rather than Christ. Paul's ministry was markedly different. He told the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We preach Christ crucified, he said. Specifically, we proclaim the good news of our text that He gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us. That is the one true gospel in a single sentence, and and anyone who comes up with a more sophisticated-sounding narrative is supposed to be rejected, or as Paul says here, damned. We're not supposed to engage them in a friendly dialogue so that everybody can consider all the points of view. It's intriguing and significant, I think, that a serious heresy like this would have crept into the church so early in the apostolic era, while Paul is still planting churches. Even Paul is astonished that they're so quickly deserting the truth. Some people today have the notion that the primitive church was totally pure, and whatever you read from the post-apostolic church fathers is practically as authoritative as the Bible. You hear people these days all saying, because, because the church has trampled tradition so much, saying, well, we need to go back to the early church and their traditions. But Scripture itself says, yeah, you don't take even the early church fathers for granted. Everything anyone teaches must be examined alongside the Scriptures to see whether these things are so. That's what the Bereans did. And that's true even if the teacher is an angel or an apostle, Paul says here. That's what discernment demands. And sadly, the church in practically every generation has failed to take the stance that Paul takes here. And that failure explains, I think, why the visible church always needs reforming. It's one of the, one of the uh, slogans of the Protestant Reformation, semper reformanda, always reforming. We always need to reform because there have always been professing Christians who join the church and identify with the people of God, but their faith is superficial, and their message is twisted in some way. They don't really like the gospel message, and they think that with a little tinkering, you know, maybe we can reimagine the gospel and remove the stumbling block of the cross, as if we could 
fix the message so that Christ himself won't be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And in fact, I think there's something innate in every human heart, part of the fallen nature of our humanity that makes us all wish for a different kind of gospel. And, and Scripture actually recognizes this. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And verse 23, the message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles because the carnal mind wants something that's not offensive and, and more refined than a blood sacrifice and more dignified or maybe even more ceremonial, more ritualistic. And so religions come up with all the pomp and circumcision, you know? Back in 2017, one of the stars of the contemporary Christian music industry was Michael Gunger. So you who follow contemporary Christian music probably know that name, Michael Gunger. And he went on Twitter at the time and sent a series of messages saying that he finds the whole idea of blood atonement primitive and embarrassing. And he said, and I'm quoting him here, these are his exact words, the idea that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful, it's horrific. And he said he thinks the real message of the cross is, quote, the blood sacrifice idea is unnecessary and we should stop trying to get to God with violence. But scripture itself expressly says that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's Hebrews 9.22. And the, the gospel, as Paul describes it right here in our text, is that Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us. And furthermore, listen to what Paul says, and he says this without flinching in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. In other words, what he's saying is that the accumulated guilt of every evil, obscene, or wicked deed that was ever committed by all the multitudes whom God will ultimately save, all of that was imputed to Christ. And you can't faithfully preach the gospel without actually stressing the fact that Christ's death on the cross paid the price. It was a blood atonement that God absolutely required for the forgiveness of sins because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Paul's curse applies to everyone who tries to alter that or tone it down or get rid of it. Now, I don't think the average gospel-corrupting heretic actually sets out deliberately to commit a damnable sin. I, I think that, that's actually probably pretty rare. I don't think every heretic really understands that he's preaching heresy. You know, I don't think people join the church with a premeditated plan to become heretics. I think most false teachers are themselves deceived before they become deceivers. But the problem is they think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. They assume they can determine what's true or what's false by reason alone, or worse, by how something makes them feel. Even though Proverbs 28, 26 says, the one who trusts in his own heart is a fool. They actually believe that they're doing a good thing by trying to fix whatever they find distasteful about the message of the cross. They may think their motives are pure. They probably have the 
same motives that drove the circumcision party to do what they did. Namely, they're trying to make the message more appealing to whoever their target market is. But don't miss the point of this text. Paul is cursing every effort to do that. And let me be really candid here. I think there's a tendency in all of us to imagine that we might be clever enough or winsome enough to win the hearts of sinners better than the pure, undiluted message of the gospel could do by itself. So we tone it down. We think we're ingenious enough to get rid of the offense of the cross without actually corrupting the gospel. I think most of us, if not all of us, have entertained thoughts like that. It's a desire that we need to recognize is sinful and mortify it. And Paul's emphatic about that. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God. And the way to do that, he told Timothy, is not to revise and embellish the message, but to guard the treasure that's been entrusted to you. That's 2 Timothy 1.14. If you genuinely think that the impression you make on people is the main factor that could win them to Christ, you're guilty of preaching yourself rather than Christ Jesus as Lord. Have confidence in the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And by the way, the gospel is deliberately unsophisticated. That's God's design. The gospel is made in order to land a death blow to human pride. You try to spice it up or tone it down or make it sound more sophisticated, and you will inevitably corrupt it. And in fact, according to 2 Corinthians 11.3, one of the main strategies of Satan is to draw us away from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's simple on purpose. There are, I think, three common tendencies that subtly draw people away from the faithful proclamation of the simple, unvarnished gospel. And Paul alludes to all of them in our text. So I want to point them out to you from our text one at a time. Three things that tend to draw us away from the simplicity of the gospel. Number one, an itch for something new. This is a malignant tendency that has afflicted the American evangelical movement for at least 250 years, you know? We want something new and timely. It's the reason today's evangelicals move from one fad to another with such breathtaking speed and ease. Because believers, and I'm including us all here, we are too easily corrupted from the simplicity and purity of Christ. Because there's an incredible amount of pressure coming from within the church even, coming from some self-appointed church leader gurus who insist that you can't effectively reach the next generation unless you follow the styles of popular culture. That's why so many pastors today exegete superhero movies rather than preaching the word. But notice this, whatever is in fashion today will soon go out of fashion not only has it become virtually impossible to stay up to speed on changing styles, we also know from experience, don't we, that today's fads will be the brunt of tomorrow's jokes. For decades, American evangelicals 
have blindly run after a seemingly endless parade of shallow fads, and if I named them all for you, you'd see how silly they are. In fact, let me do that. <laughs> and our, our college students won't remember this, but those of us in the geriatric ward <laughs> are old enough to remember when everyone was reading fictional stories about territorial warfare with demons. This Present Darkness, and all the sequels to that book. And then you had the Left Behind craze, and that started, I think, to die out as soon as everyone was praying the prayer of Jabez, which gave way to 40 Days of Purpose, followed by Mel Gibson's movie, I forget the name of it, <laughs> followed by the emerging church movement, followed by hipster religion, and now I suppose it's the chosen, or maybe some other evangelical fad that I haven't heard about yet. And we look back with contempt on almost everything that became wildly popular and then fell out of fashion from the 1980s until last month. Because, I mean, think about it. No one who has any kind of influence is praying the prayer of Jabez every morning anymore, right? At least I hope you're not. And we make jokes about how Wild at Heart used a fictional character from a gladiator movie as the model of true Christian masculinity. We ought to make jokes about that. And did you ever wonder what all the trinket manufacturers did with the warehouses full of WWJD merchandise when that fad wore out? But running, running after every evangelical fad doesn't make you relevant. It guarantees that very soon you will be uh, totally irrelevant. So why do evangelicals have this insatiable craving to run after every new thing? That was what Scripture says about the godless Athenians in Paul's time, Acts 17, 21. All the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. One of my favorite sayings from Spurgeon and the downgrade controversy was a sentence that was written by Spurgeon's friend and fellow pastor Robert Schindler. He said this, quote, In theology, that which is new is not true, and that which is true is not new. That's exactly right. If you accept the principle of sola scriptura, if you believe that Scripture alone contains everything necessary for God's glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, then you must acknowledge the truth of that little aphorism. Anything new is not true, and whatever's true is not new. That's actually Paul's whole point about the gospel here. Notice his words, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. And in verse 9, just before he gives a curse the second time, he says, as we have said before, so I say again now. I've thought about this several ways. I don't think he means that he just said this in the previous verse. We wouldn't need to say anything that obvious. I think when he says, we've said this before, he's reminding them that even while he was with them in person, he had already warned them not to listen if anyone came teaching some newfangled message. But the speed with which the Galatians turned away from Paul's clear, simple gospel in search of something new is breathtaking. Again, this is a 
common tendency. It requires firm determination to stay steadfast and immovable. And someone who is not deeply anchored in the truth of God's Word will always risk being tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. And that's what's happening here to the Galatians. Something new had caught their fancy, and, and lacking any deep roots, they now are being swayed by the sheer novelty of it. The same tendency is, you actually see it today on a global scale. It drives all of culture today, both in the church and in the world. Like the people of Athens in Acts 17, 21, people today spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something newer. And we do it on Twitter, you know? The internet feeds us a nonstop list of what's currently trending. Do you, do you look at the things that are trending and, and let that guide your thinking every day? That's a reflection of this lust for novelty. That's what stokes the, the desire for always new things. And the antidote to that is the unchanging gospel. There's only one true gospel. And Paul is saying to the Galatians, it can't be approved, improved on, and it shouldn't be messed with. If someone ever tells you that we need a new and more relevant message, if we're going to reach the next generation, let him be accursed. Don't listen to him. The Christian blogosphere right now is full of people who self-identify as evangelicals, but they don't have any firm commitment to the truth that Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. They're actually watching this present evil age and trying to follow it. They think it's a better idea to make friends with this present evil age, and so they become enthralled with whatever's trending, from social justice to whatever happens to be the hashtag on the list this morning. And that's what they proclaim instead of the gospel, as if, as if God had called us to immerse ourselves in the values and the jargon and the entertainment of this present evil age, when in reality, he has called us by the grace of Christ to be delivered from this present evil age. You know, some people would rather talk about almost anything rather than the great themes of the gospel. You remember that when Jesus was leaving the disciples, he promised them he would send the Holy Spirit, and he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He names three themes there that the Holy Spirit wants to convict unsaved people with, and yet, in countless pulpits today and on the lips of innumerable churchgoers, those three topics are deliberately omitted in the name of relevance. We don't talk about sin or righteousness or judgment, divine judgment, because those things are deemed too negative, and we don't want to be rendered irrelevant. And that's the inevitable result when believers allow an itch for something new to influence our message or our philosophy of ministry. In fact, I would say that's the chief besetting sin of 21st century evangelicals. But here's a second sort of fleshly lust that causes believers to veer off message. Tendency number two, an urge to modify. 
an urge to modify. Now, I'm an editor, so I have this insatiable urge to modify everything, right? But it's not good when it comes to the gospel. Verse 7, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He makes it clear that these false teachers had a bad motive born out of an evil desire. They had a premeditated plan to warp and wrench the gospel out of shape. They want to distort the message. And again, I don't think he necessarily means to suggest that these guys were self-consciously in league with Satan, uh, that they were, I don't think he's saying, they, they, they're seeking to be sinister and knowingly conspiring to do evil because they have this sheer hatred for Christ. I don't think that's the case. Most likely, they didn't think of themselves as enemies of Christ, but in their self-deceived and spiritually darkened minds, they probably believed that they were actually improving the gospel by making it more harmonious with Moses' law and removing a serious stigma from the Gentile converts and fixing what they saw as a glaring deficiency in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. The problem was their problem, the false teacher's problem, was not that they had an itch for something new. That love of novelty may have been what made the Galatians susceptible to their false doctrine, but the circumcision party themselves actually had a different agenda. They wanted to preserve elements of the Old Testament religion, the old covenant requirements, things that were, in biblical terms, being brought to an end. And so they had this urge to modify the gospel, perhaps in order to devise a message that would be more acceptable to their priests and scholars. They wanted something more sophisticated than the simple message of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They wanted their religion to be more polished, more ornate, more congenial to human pride. And so they had this urge to modify it. And that is the bane of many who live in the academic realm. And I'm not talking about anybody at our seminary or anybody specific here, but it's true in general, that even in the evangelical academic world, if a seminary student writes a dissertation on any of the central themes of the, doc, of the gospel, he's very likely going to be encouraged or even formally required to concoct some novel point of view or to make an argument that no one else has ever proposed against some magisterial principle. You know, in much of the academic world, it seems the prevailing philosophy is just the opposite, that if it's not new, it's of no value. And so, ostensibly, evangelical scholars constantly spin out new perspectives and other modified doctrines and even the most basic and long-established principles of Trinitarianism are now recklessly being revamped and reimagined with a fair amount of frequency. That is the fruit of the postmodern idea. Nothing is certain, nothing is really settled, nothing is authoritative. Anything and everything nowadays can be reimagined and refashioned, tweaked and twisted, and even supposedly conservative evangelical scholars sometimes seem like they're infected with this relentless urge to modify the historic confessions of faith. Even the circumcision party weren't actually that foolhardy. The truth is, the modification they made to Paul's gospel seems rather insignificant by today's standard. 
They didn't question the authority of Scripture. They didn't deny the imputation of Christ's righteousness. They didn't directly attack the concept of substitutionary atonement. What they proposed boiled down really to just a slight change in the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. They thought it was necessary for some kind of good work to precede justification. Whereas Paul taught that good works flow out of saving faith, not vice versa. And so a person, according to the gospel, is fully justified at the first moment of faith. Then obedience follows as the inevitable fruit of saving faith. We all believe that. Paul stressed that faith alone, though, is the instrument by which we lay hold of our justification. Again, that is Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work but believes, his faith is counted for righteousness. So justification comes first, then works, then good works. Good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, according to Ephesians 2. But the circumcision party said, no, no, a minimal expression of obedience, that first act of compliance with the ceremonial law, that's a necessary prerequisite for justification. So obedience first, then justification. Now, both sides agreed that faith without works is dead. Both sides believed that faith and obedience will always accompany genuine salvation. Both sides believed that good works are, in one sense or another, necessary, but they disagreed about where good works fit in the order of salvation. Now, you think about it, by the standards that are in vogue today, that may sound like a difference that's almost too small to worry about. Here, here in fact, is what J. Gresham Machen said about it. He wrote, quote, about many things the Judaizers were in perfect agreement with Paul. The Judaizers believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus had really risen from the dead. They believed that faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. From the modern point of view, the difference between them and Paul would have seemed to be very slight. Surely Paul ought to have made common cause with teachers who were so near in agreement with him. Surely he ought to have applied them applied to them the great principle of Christian unity. However, Machen says, Paul did nothing of the kind, and only because he did nothing of the kind does the Christian church exist today. It's a pretty strong point, but it's true that what seemed like a small point of disagreement was in fact a wholesale attack on the central point of gospel truth, that salvation is God's work. It's not about what the sinner brings to the table. The circumcision party made justification hinge on a work that's done by the sinner. And that simple refinement destroyed the whole gospel message. And that happens, by the way, every time someone decides that the gospel is not sophisticated enough or scholarly enough or rigorous enough or broad enough, when people start to tweak the gospel, they almost always inject some kind of works into the formula. Maybe it's something as insignificant as walking an aisle or saying a formulaic prayer or being baptized or following some other ceremonial requirement, but to make any kind of human work instrumental in justification is to destroy the doctrine completely. Remember, that's what those guys with the big lit-up truck did at Shepherd's Conference last year. They were arguing with their flashy billboard 
that obedience is a necessary instrument for justification. Paul says exactly the opposite. Genuine saving faith is the natural expression of God's saving work. It's not the means by which we gain salvation. God is the one who opens spiritually blind eyes. He is the one who grants repentance. He is the one who awakens faith. Regeneration, faith, and repentance, all of them are wrought by God's grace, and they are not human works. Paul says this expressly in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, a verse that most of you might have memorized. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that, and there he's referring to every facet of salvation is not of yourselves, it is all the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And he goes on then to say, even the good works we do, God has prepared for us to walk in them. That is the central tenet of gospel truth. Salvation is God's work. And the Judaizers' tiny little modification totally nullified that because they eliminated the fundamental truth that no element of salvation is a human work. When it comes to the gospel, that urge to modify is damnably sinful. So, let's review. Here are the sinful attitudes that give rise to a corrupted gospel. An itch for something new, an urge to modify, and now third and finally, a craving for the applause of men. And I know you've heard me say this before, but I hate this. I hate this this tendency that people have to adjust their theology and their teaching in order to gain the applause of the world or the academic realm or whatever it is they want by way of approval from men. Verse 10, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, Paul says, I would not be a slave of Christ. Now, Paul could have pleased a whole lot of people if he had simply acquiesced to the teaching of the circumcision party, or even simply ignored them or tried to coexist peacefully with their error, that's what Peter originally tried to do. A quest for human approval was clearly the dominant motive of the circumcision party in the first place. It's what they wanted. They they were Pharisees who, you know, did everything to please men anyway, and they no doubt thought of their work in the gospel as a shrewd sort of public relations campaign. They were trying to remove something that the elite rulers of Judaism found offensive about the gospel message, the idea that unclean Gentiles could be saved without first becoming Jewish. And Paul himself more or less acknowledges that people find the gospel offensive. He says in Galatians 5.11, that by preaching circumcision, he himself could avoid persecution and remove the offense of the cross. He was from the same kind of background as the Judaizers. So he knew this. The circumcision party had probably convinced themselves that they were doing Christ a favor by making the gospel message sound more appealing. What they were really doing was seeking the favor of men rather than God. And Paul says in verse 10, You can't do that and think that you're serving Christ. And Paul, by the way, knew very well what it was to crave the applause of men because, think about it, that is the dominant goal of Pharisaism, and it was the goal of Paul's life 
Before he was converted on the road to Damascus, he persecuted the church at the behest of the Sanhedrin because it gave him status within Judaism's most powerful ruling body. And according to Jesus, that was the whole error of Pharisaism, Matthew 23, verse 5. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And multitudes in Israel had rejected Christ and remained in unbelief for that very same reason. John 12, verse 43, they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. There's no greater impediment to genuine faith than that. Jesus said, John 5, 44, how can you believe when you seek glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the only God? Or Luke 16, 15, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. That's why you can't seek the favor of men and receive the favor of God at the same time, because that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Now, a sinful craving for the applause of men can produce a showy brand of legalism like that of the Pharisees, but not always. Sometimes it's almost the opposite. In fact, in the modern academic world, it makes people tend to stifle their convictions and over-nuance every point of truth so that in the end, truth itself lies hidden under a mountain of stammering qualifications and, and vague uncertainties, and nobody wants to take a firm stance on anything. That's the tendency today. But the truth is, you cannot faithfully proclaim the gospel if you mince words. You won't be clear and definitive if you're terrified about getting a negative reaction. And you're not preaching the true gospel at all if you modify the message in a way that seeks the appreciation of all of your listeners. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.22. Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Now think about this. If Paul had a seeker-sensitive ministry philosophy, you know, that resembles the ministry strategy of practically every church growth guru who's in business today. If he thought that way, the way ahead for him would be clear. Jews ask for signs, Greeks seeks for wisdom. He certainly had the ability to produce all of the signs of a true apostle, signs and wonders and miracles. He could do that. And furthermore, he was already the most highly educated of all the apostles because he'd grown up in this pharisaical system as a genuine scholar, he was able to hold his own with the Greek philosophers at the Areopagus. He could have contextualized the gospel in the language of Greek wisdom with all the trappings of philosophical sophistication, but instead, he said, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. Rather than catering to the Jewish demand for a sign, he gave him a stumbling block. Refusing to answer the Greek demand for erudition and wisdom, he preached a message that he knew would sound foolish to them. Now understand, why did he do this? Paul didn't have some perverse agenda to frustrate all of his listeners. He went on to explain that this message and that strategy are God's choice so that no flesh may boast before God. Because the gospel purposely does not cater to human pride. And when we're tempted to tone it down or dress it up, we need to remember that. There is only one gospel. 
And it's too easy to nullify it or modify it or otherwise embellish it in order to fulfill some kind of fleshly, self-aggrandizing desire. We need to guard carefully against all of those tendencies the way Paul did. And know that the earthly cost of being a faithful witness for Christ is high. But the glory of heaven makes it more than worthwhile. Let's pray. Father, we confess our hearts are often filled with less than noble motives. We love novelties. We aren't always faithful to proclaim the gospel without trying to fix it up or dumb it down. And we crave the approval of men more than we ought. Fix our minds and our hearts on the eternal, immutable glory of the gospel and give us grace and the strength to be faithful and steadfast for your glory and for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.